So our next speaker is Brian Hales. Brian Hales is the author or co-author of seven books dealing with plural marriage, most notably the three-volume Joseph Smith's Polygamy, History and Theology. He and his wife, Laura, are current webmasters of josephsmithpolygamy.org. Presently, Brian is working on two book-through manuscripts dealing with Joseph Smith's treasure-seeking and the authorship of the Book of Mormon. And there's a lot more under his bio, but I'm just going to turn the time over to Brian. I really appreciate being here. I'm grateful to Scott and to John Lynch and all of the Fair Mormon uh, board members and everyone who's uh, allowed me to participate. I'm also really glad not to be talking about polygamy. Uh, as I was researching plural marriage, um, which I've done for decades, I would sometimes have people ask me, Why, are you worried about what you're going to find and how it might affect your testimony? And, in the back of my mind, I always had this belief Joseph Smith could not have created the Book of Mormon. And so he was a prophet in 1829, in my thinking, and so I didn't think he lost that uh, mantle that he fell. And so I never was really too worried about what I might find as we're looking under stones, me and Don Bradley, uh, uh, to try to understand the, the plural marriage things in Nauvoo. And then about four years ago, when I stopped researching polygamy and writing on that topic, I, I thought, let's test this, this uh, theory that Joseph couldn't have produced the Book of Mormon. So what you're seeing here is, is a culmination kind of of some of the research that I've been doing for several years. Uh, there is an article coming out in BYU Studies in the very next issue, probably be out in the next couple of uh, weeks. Uh, there'll be an online version, Steve Harper, I'm grateful to him. Uh, uh, but it will cover a lot of the same material that I'll have here today. And again, I'm grateful for BYU Studies and their willingness to do this. Now, when we talk about the Book of Mormon, I think everyone here knows we're talking about a big book with a lot of moving parts, if you will. And Joseph Smith, oh, and one thing I want to point out is that it's written to about an eighth grade reading level. And there's lots of algorithms that people will put books into. And... It, it comes out at least at an eighth grade level, or some of the algorithms say it's even more complex than that and should be um, even college level. If you're interested in this material, just I refer you to this article in Interpreter, and I love Interpreter, grateful to Dan and, and all of his crew for their work within in allowing this, this article, but it, it talks about um, how you calculate the reading level of the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith said he received the words of the Book of Mormon through supernatural uh, influences. But just as soon as he was making this claim, the people around him, critics, which are, who were always with us and always will be, at least until uh, the Lord comes again, they were saying, no, this is natural. The Book of Mormon came through natural means. And things were being published even before the Book of Mormon was printed, saying these things, giving this message. It came through natural uh, efforts. And then if you fast forward to the last few decades, there have been dozens, uh, if not hundreds of books with the message that Joseph Smith was able to produce the, the Book of Mormon through natural means. 
It's interesting to me how many of these publications come from signature books, but that's just kind of a, a side discussion. I think the most prominent two are Von Brody's book and my friend Dan Bogle's book uh, that champion this idea that the Book of Mormon came uh, through natural means. And so what I've done the last four years is created a database. And quickly, see if you can read fast, I'm just kidding. But um, I, I just wanted to demonstrate that it's, it's got about 65,000 words in it, but I've taken excerpts from 170 plus secular sources telling how Joseph was able to create all those words. And if we chart these, we find there's really five predominant theories. There's the Solomon Spalding theory, collaboration with someone, mental illness, automatic writing, and then Joseph's intellect. And if we look at them over chronologically, Notice the far right column. That's Joseph Smith's intellect. Originally, Joseph is dumb. The Book of Mormon is dumb. So that's how it was produced. But look at the first column, Solomon Spaulding. In 1834, it's introduced, and then everybody is jumping on this bandwagon for the next 50 years. And then something happens, and then there's this smattering of ideas, and people aren't sure exactly. And then, again, things start to shift over to the Joseph Smith's intellect. His, his brain was sufficient to do it, and that's by far and away the most predominant theory today. If we track these graphically this way, we see the dark purple is Joseph Smith's intellect. That's at the beginning, and then we see it predominating at the end. There's the pink there for the Solomon Spaulding theory. So what we're going to do is talk about these five theories. These are the most predominant ones uh, from the naturalists uh, explaining where Joseph got all of the words. Now, the Spaulding theory begins in 1812 with Solomon Spaulding writing a manuscript. And we call it manuscript story. It has different names sometimes depending upon who you're reading. But he shares this manuscript with his neighbors. He reads it to them or he bar lets them use it, they borrow it and read it. He dies four years later and according to this theory the, word, the manuscript was then passed to Sidney Rigdon who added some of the religious elements and then it was passed to Joseph Smith who secretly put it into the translation process. Well the Book of Mormon is published in 1830 and some of the people who are reading the Book of Mormon are the same people that Spalding had shared his manuscript with back in 1812. And they're starting to say, hey, this, these are the same people in the same places in the Book of Mormon that I remember Solomon Spalding had in his manuscript. And this theory was published in 1834 by E.D. Howe. And it just took off like wildfire. It just predominates almost everybody's theories for at least 50 years. But then in 1884, they find the copy, and they discover some things about it that make people less sure that there's an actual connection between the Spalding manuscript and the Book of Mormon. So the reasons why Spalding theory is not really widely accepted today, and it really isn't, um, it comes in at 50,840 words, which is less than a fifth the size of the Book of Mormon. So even if Joseph plagiarized every word, he'd really have to come up with a lot of words on his own. The overall writing style and composition are vastly different. There's no identical or similar names of people and places. 
And there's just no documentation that Sidney Rigdon had ever met Spalding or was aware of his manuscript. And then there's a problem with any theory that says that Joseph had a pre-existing manuscript. How did he get that into the translation process? We have friendly and unfriendly people telling us Joseph put his head in a hat and dictated. There were no other manuscripts around. And, and so if he had a manuscript, did he memorize it the night before? Did he sneak it into the hat? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a problem that is not just for this particular theory. Now, the second theory from, from the database is collaborators, independent of the Spalding manuscript. And Oliver Cowdery is, is one of the most common ones. Um, Roger Anderson. Uh, in his book, and more recently, uh, Richard Van Wagner's book, both posit that, that Joseph and Oliver together wrote the Book of Mormon and that they, they had the skills to do it. Another common one is Sidney Rigdon, because he was really the smartest one of, of the group there of the early, early saints, probably. And people will say he must have done it somehow and, and slipped it to Joseph Smith. I added this one because it's just fascinating to me. It's almost a 500-page book. The theory is that Joseph Smith Sr. wrote the, the Book of Mormon and then used Joseph Smith Jr. as the front man. Now, the reasons why the collaborator theory is not more widely accepted, uh, the supportive arguments are primarily speculative. There there's just isn't any credible corroborative historical documentation. And then you've got to ask the question, particularly if Sidney Rigdon were involved or someone, but why would anyone put in all of that work without eventually demanding some of the credit? So the collaborator theory is out there, never been that popular. The third theory, oh, I'm sorry, and then we're back to the how does he get a manuscript into it. The third theory is mental illness. And it's obviously a retrospective diagnosis. There was nobody in Nauvoo, who, visitors, who came in and said, Joseph, I think you're schizophrenic. I mean, they didn't have that language. They didn't have the diagnostic abilities then. But we find in 1903, I. Woodbridge Riley said Joseph had epilepsy. And that, that was helping him with some of the visions and things. That Bernard uh, DeVoto in, in 1930 said he had a paranoid personality disorder. There's Harry Beardsley, dementia praecox. I don't know if the, uh, the button or the battery's dead in this. Am I? There we go. Kimball Young, parapath. Klaus Hansen, schizophrenia. And Klaus Hansen backed away from that after a while. Larry Foster, bipolar disorder. And Larry's actually changed from that too. I met him at MHA. He said he has another theory now. Bill Moraine, dissociation. Uh, Robert Anderson, Narcissistic Personality Disorder. But all of the, the problems with this is that psychoanalysis of dead people is an inexact science. Uh, Dr. Roy Grinker, he said this, Freud started the fashion of analyzing writers as well as historical characters such as Shakespeare, Leonardo da Vinci, and even Moses. Many of his students have followed this this pattern in writing often brilliantly imaginative interpretations of the neuroses and psychoses of authors, playwrights, and artists, which are based on a minimum of evidence. 
psychoanalytic theory carried to excess or based on biased reports of the life histories of authors becomes ridiculous. A second reason, with respect to mental illness, narcissism could give someone more confidence in themselves, and a manic phase of, a, of bipolar disease could amplify a person's energy. And if you've ever seen anybody in that, it's, it's remarkable, their energy. But mental illness will always diminish a person's cognitive abilities to perform complex functions. If this were not so, psychiatric hospitals would be teeming with all of these amazingly creative works of artists and, and books and things, and we just don't see it. It's just the opposite of that. Automatic writing. This is a fun topic, and I would refer you to the current issue of Dialogue. I have an article in there that has much more details than I'm able to present uh, here today. But automatic writing is a term used to designate writing that is done without the writer being conscious of what he is writing. A person who writes automatically is usually in some altered state of consciousness. And before psychology got involved, there was spirit writing, trance writing, channeling. And these things have been known for hundreds of years. And these are words that could be spoken. These are words that could be produced with a planchette that has a, a pencil or a pen on it and you just move it around a paper. There's Ouija boards, which also could produce words fairly rapidly, uh, as a matter of fact. Now, the characteristics of automatic writing is that there's no pre-writing and there's no rewriting. In other words, if you go to a college campus and learn about creative writing, we're going to learn there's three basic stages. You pre-write, you get your notes, you get uh, quotations, grab the books you're going to use, and, and an outline, and then, then you write that first, that first draft, and then you rewrite the draft, and you rewrite the draft, and you rewrite the draft, and you revise it, and you cut and paste, and you copy edit, and you content edit, and all of these things. But with automatic writing, you just write. The words are produced, and then they are usually published with very little change. Sorry about this really busy slide. Um, it's reproduced in the article and dialogue, which you can download for free as a PDF. But the first column, uh, and what I've done here is tried to accumulate every automatic writer who has produced a long manuscript. And the first column is the name of the, the most popular of their manuscripts, the date it was published, the name of the author, the birth date of the author, the education of the author, the number of words, and then the last column is uh, where did the, all of the words come from according to that individual. And one thing that we'll notice is that there's, there's a breakdown in the education of the automatic writer versus the complexity of the book or essay that they're writing. Very complex texts are being written by people with minimal education, and if we go back to the chart, and I don't know if you can see there, but I've highlighted that column, we can see that some of these people have PhDs, or they're dentists or doctors, so they're smart. That doesn't necessarily mean they can write books, but they are educated. But several of the people really have minimal education, but they're creating long, complex texts. Uh, a third characteristic is that all of these authors attribute the words to some force outside of themselves. If you ask them, where'd the words come from? Did you make them up? They would, none of them would say they came from me or I composed this text. They always attribute it to someone else. And again, if you look at that last column, you can see that they're in a trance state or they're talking to Jehovah or they're getting it from Akashic records or from 
someone named Seth or, or a, a spirit guide or something like this, but, but they aren't claiming credit for these writings. The most common, and I apologize, the uh, Joseph and the Book of Mormon are at the bottom of that slide and it's cut off, but the most common uh, book, uh, automatic writing that's compared to the Book of Mormon is called The Sorry Tale by Pearl Curran. The Sorry Tale was published in 1917. It has 264,000 words. It was communicated through the spirit of a deceased woman named Patience Worth, who said she had lived in England in the 1600s. It came through a Ouija board, although Pearl Curran eventually got rid of the Ouija board, didn't need it anymore, and before her death, Curran had communicated over four million words from this, this deceased person, Patience Worth. And the book, uh, The Sorry Tale, is just one of several books that uh, Pearl Curran uh, composed. If we compare The Sorry Tale and Joseph Smith to Pearl Curran and The Sorry Tale, there are a number of undeniable similarities. The authors had minimal education, there was no pre-writing and no rewriting, there was just dictation. The word counts are similar, there's similar complexity, actually I think the Book of Mormon is more complex, but the dictation sessions were of similar length and they would start where they previously ended the dictation. They didn't go back and review or anything to start again. There was no editing, it went straight to the printer and then both used an instrument, Joseph the Seerstone and uh, Pearl Curran used the uh, Ouija board. The naturalistic explanation for automatic writings is, is intriguing. It starts by talking about what we think with, and this is mostly stuff uh, that was published by Freud. But he says our minds are made up of our conscious thoughts and then preconscious. Preconscious being things we can immediately call up, as if I asked you, what was your first elementary school? You could probably remember that name, but it wasn't on the, the stage of your mind before, before I asked it. But then, there's an unconscious portion of our minds that's made up of all kinds of feelings and memories and, and knowledge elements. And through automatic writing, those unconscious elements are brought into consciousness. And, and therapists will sometimes hypnotize their clients their patients and have them write in a trance and sometimes they can use whatever is written to help them improve their mental health. The, uh, this has be been re-emphasized to us recently by Dr. Ann Taves in her book Revelatory Events. And she theorizes in this book, and it was just published in 2016, that Joseph Smith would see the seer stone, and that would trigger a kind of a formal hypnotic induction. She called it an imaginative storytelling mode, a visual modality, or a highly focused awareness. And once Joseph entered into this state, he was able to automate and effortlessly dictate. I talk a lot more about this in the article if you, if you look at that. Now, the reasons why automatic writing is not more popular among the secularists is that hypnosis does not transform a person into someone with greater creativity, memory, or cognitive function. That just doesn't happen. I'm going to give you just a few examples. Um, psychologist John F. Kilstrom, he wrote, hypnosis appears to be incapable of enhancing memory, but hypnotic procedures can impair memory. And sometimes what'll happen, and, and, and Dr. Taves and Scott Dunn, who's written on this, will say, 
that somebody under hypnosis remembered something that happened when they were five years old that they didn't know that they could remember and so therefore Joseph Smith could systematize all the memory needed to create the Book of Mormon. There's kind of a leap there but the memory doesn't work that way in a trans uh, state. John A. Barge and Ezekiel Mosea of Yale said, although concept activation and primitive associated learning could occur unconsciously, anything complex requiring flexible responding, integration of stimuli or higher mental processes could not. And then one other example, hypnosis does not appear to bolster creativity relative to non-hypnotic conditions. And I've, I've reviewed hundreds of articles and read dozens. You just can't go into a trance state and suddenly become a, a super author of, or a super anything, actually. It doesn't increase your abilities. So a second problem with the automatic writing theory is that explaining an alleged supernatural activity with another alleged supernatural activity does not result in a naturalistic explanation. And uh, we, we see critics will sometimes refer to the sorry tale in Pearl Curran and say, see, I've explained how Joseph did it. Well, not really, okay? What, we, what, what they need is a naturalistic explanation for one of the processes, and then maybe they could apply it to both. Joseph Smith's intellect theory. I, I, this is the funnest one of all. Uh, we notice that it is the most popular today. There's, there's very few... Uh, people seriously promoting any other theory to explain how Joseph Smith generated all of those words. The problem with all of these theorists, all of the advocates, is they treat Joseph like a black box. What is a black box? Well, a black box talks about inputs and outputs. Doesn't talk about what's going on inside of the box. And when we apply this to Joseph Smith, what we find among the critics is that they focus on the input. They say he plagiarized the King James Bible. He, he borrowed from view of the Hebrews. He, he grabbed parallel phrases from a whole host of books, or he grabbed things from his environment. Um, they will also attack the output of the book. Uh, archaeology disproves the Book of Mormon. Indian DNA disproves the Book of Mormon. There are anachronisms and all kinds of changes, according to Gerald Tanner. And then in linguistics, disprove it. And then what happens with most of the advocates of this theory is that they talk about these things in yellow as if they're explaining how Joseph Smith generated all of the words. I'm not even sure that they, they really recognize the fact that, that talking about the input and the output doesn't explain how Joseph was able to mentally create the Book of Mormon text. They, they, they ignore what's going on inside. So the question comes up, well, how would you open the box? I mean, that's, that's a tall order. You, how do you look inside somebody's brain, especially when it, this happened in 1829? Well, I would offer two suggestions. One is that we identify the cognitive skill set that Joseph Smith would have needed to dictate the Book of Mormon, and then we simply demonstrate that he possessed most of those abilities. You can ask, well, what does it take to create the Book of Mormon like Joseph did? Well, we don't have studies on creative dictation, but we do have lots of studies on creative writing of long essays and long books. And there are people who have spent a great deal of time asking writers to think about what they're thinking as they're writing. And, and they've taken this research and they've compiled different models. And this one 
by Linda Flowers and John Hayes is the most popular. It was done in 1981. Again, it's for creative writing. But what they came up with is this model here. So what they've tried to do is figure out what's going on in a writer's mind as they're writing all of the sentences that become a, a large book. It starts with what they call the rhetorical problem, but this is really the motivation. What would motivate somebody to write a book? That what, what is the issue that they're trying to address? In this model, the long-term memory actually included things outside of the brain of the writer. They were allowed to have books and, and articles and notes and outlines and things. And then we have what's going on inside the mind of the individual, and there's different boxes there that you can see, and they define these. Just basically, we've got the planning box, which is where there's organization of the first attempts to create the words that eventually will, will go into the text. There's a section that is constantly reviewing what's going on and what they're about to say or write uh, on, in the text. And then it all comes together in what they call the translating stage. And that becomes the words produced so far. Now, the question is, oh, and I should point out, this is important, that there is a feedback loop. In other words, what they write is not the final draft. They can rewrite. So there's a cycle there. They write, and then they revise, and then they write, and they revise until they get to the final. Now, the question is, could we modify this creative writing model to apply to creative dictation, which is what the intellect theory says Joseph used to create all of the words? This is my version, and I welcome people to modify it or start from scratch. But I've had to make a few changes in the Flower-Hayes model in order to apply it to somebody who's dictating and not writing. First, everything goes into the mind. And that, that's a rhetorical problem, but it's also everything from memory. You're not, Joseph used no manuscripts or books. So anything he was going to recall to be in the Book of Mormon, he had to preload into his brain. And the intellect theory posits that Joseph had like seven years of district schooling. He'd visited bookstores and libraries. He had been memorizing the Bible and scrutinizing view of the Hebrews and the Last War and Napoleon's first book and a whole bunch of other books and that he'd been going to all kinds of, of camp meetings and religious revivals. And my friend Mike Quinn would say he'd been reading lots of books on magic, too. I mean, he was a busy guy, according to the, this theory. The problem is there's just no credible evidence to support that Joseph was doing any of these things. He probably had a third-grade education, but, but these other things, there's just no documentation for it. And there's actually contradictory evidences in several cases. We also find that the midterm and short-term memory, when you're dictating a book, is highly taxed, highly burdened. Flower and Hayes said each word in the growing text determines and limits the choices of what can come next. And it also taxes short-term memory. And, and so you're wordsmithing a, a current sentence, lexical choices, syntactical choices, but you also have to remember the very last sentence. So it'll be coherent. So the, the memory is really uh, burdened throughout this process. And then notice this arrow. It goes one way. Once you dictate the sentence, you're done. So that's nice. But you've got to make sure it's right the first time, or else you're going to have a problem.
There's no reviewing allowed. So this just demonstrates the draft one is the final draft, but with creative writing, you can have multiple drafts and revisions. What happens if we apply this model to Joseph Smith? Well, the motivation, what would motivate Joseph to fabricate the Book of Mormon is, is somewhat controversial. We have people saying, like Dan Vogel, that he was a, a, a kind deceiver, and he was sincere, and he wanted to do good, and he was willing to lie to do it. But most, by far, the vast majority of the secularists will refer to Joseph as simply wanting power or money and followers. And so there's some controversy there, and you, and you still have to ask, what would make somebody who wanted power or money choose to write a very long book and carry on the ruse of looking in a hat at a stone for 57 days or 84 days or whatever the number is? Um, it, it doesn't naturally flow, to, in my mind. Now, he probably had a third grade education, despite an article that says he, he may have had more. I won't talk about that, but it, he probably was a, about our, our third grade level. Um, his experiences were quite limited. Uh, farmer, age 23, he did go to the coast after his operation on his knee, but uh, we have Orsimus Turner who said that Joseph did participate in a debate club occasionally and that he was a passable Methodist ex exhorter, but, but Turner also said he was uh, below average intellect. So again, not finding a lot of extensive experiences. We mentioned research-wise, there's no one reporting that he was going to bookstores and, and libraries in the area to, to review things in anticipation of the book. Creativity, we do have that one quote from Lucy Mack Smith that it, at times he would uh, give recitals and, and talk about the, book of, uh, the early inhabitants of America and, and the animals that they rode on and things of this nature. So he definitely had some creativity uh, looking at it from uh, the intellect theory's uh, viewpoint. The mid and the short-term memory, long-term memory of Joseph is difficult to assess, but we can look to 1835 when he was learning Hebrew from Joshua Satius, um, he was not the star student. He didn't manifest a, a photographic memory. In fact, Orson, Orson Pratt received a certificate saying, you can teach Hebrew. Joseph's certificate from Satius said, if you continue, you will become proficient. Okay, that's not much of an endorsement, really. But that's all that Joseph got from Satius. So even, Joseph wasn't dumb, and I'm not saying that at all, but, but we're not finding a super intelligent level of, of cognitive function in, in the historical record, and admittedly, it's not as complete as we would like. Joseph had no uh, reputation as a preacher prior to uh, dictating the Book of Mormon, uh, no uh, reputation as a storyteller, improv. So as I apply the historical record to the model that I've created, I, I don't find a real convincing set of evidence that, that Joseph would have been able to do this. Now, I'm obviously biased. I'm here. I'm a believer. And, and the, the critics are more than welcome to modify this and to, to point out the, any weaknesses. Now, a second way to open this black box would be to design a study to duplicate what Joseph Smith did. Now, it'd be kind of a hassle. You'd have to tie up several people for uh, two or three months' time. But guess what? We don't have to do that. Almost anybody in this audience 
can replicate Joseph's efforts, or at least attempt to, with this right here. We don't need Oliver Cowdery. We can use the voice-to-text app in our phones. And all you have to do is dictate a text message. Now, it needs to be about 20 to 30 words at least. And before you dictate this text message, uh, or before you hit the send button, correct the grammar, correct the spelling. Joseph went back and did this afterwards. And then you just have somebody receive the text message and, and line them up one right after another on the other end. And then you just do this over and over and over and over and over and over and over until you've done it about 10,000 times or until you have 269,320 words. Now, there are some restrictions if you want to emulate Joseph Smith's efforts. Um, first off, you cannot rearrange a single sentence or text block after you hit send. And there's a lot of remarkable uh, characteristics about the initial stream of words that Joseph Smith spoke to his scribes. But to me, this is one of the easiest to identify and talk about because anybody who's written a three-paragraph email knows that rearranging sentences is a real common phenomenon. And for Joseph Smith to have dictated nearly 7,000 sentences without rearranging a single one is a remarkable uh, phenomenon. And these were long sentences. If we compare the sentence length of the Book of Mormon to other fictional works, it's two to three times the sentence length. And it also is interesting, if he's dictating text blocks of 20 to 30 words and the average sentence length is 40, he's dictating partial sentences each time. And I don't think that would have made it any easier. Uh, you have to dictate without punctuation, and you might think that would make it easier, but BYU professor Roger Terry said Joseph Smith's task stretches far beyond his ability to convert pre-language concepts into lengthy and layered sentence structures of the Book of Mormon. Without the guidance of punctuation to separate embedded clauses, this feat would have been mind-boggling. And the importance of commas cannot be understated. The, the Book of Mormon has almost 25,000 commas and almost 6,000 semicolons that were added by John H. Gilbert, who typeset the, the text. And my, my dear wife, my sweet companion, who works as a professional editor, said she'd be charging about $50 an hour to be putting all these commas in this text. It's, it's, it would be a, a challenge. But you have to dictate without any punctuation. And of course, you have to use an alternate dialect or vernacular, and we're all grateful to Royal Skousen and Stan Carmack who have looked at how Joseph dictated the Book of Mormon using a dialect that was not upstate New York. He's not dictating in his everyday verbiage. He's choosing to do it in something else. So you can choose early English, you can choose jive. I don't, I don't care what vernacular you want to choose, but if you want to replicate Joseph, Choose something that is not your everyday speech. 
you also need to not use words, specific words, that, uh, come every, that you use in your everyday speech. There was a letter written by Joseph just weeks after the, the translation was finished. And in this letter, he closes it by saying, Now may God receive us all to rest with him in eternal repose through the atonement of Christ our Lord. The word repose does not appear in the Book of Mormon. The words peace or rest do, but this is the first word apparently he chose for that application when he's writing a letter just weeks after he's finished the translation of the Book of Mormon where he never used the word once. Uh, another example, this is a letter written a year after the Book of Mormon is published. It's written from Kirtland by Joseph to his brother Hiram. He says, I have been engaged in regulating the churches here as the, the disciples are numerous and the devil has made many attempts to overthrow them. It has been a serious job, but the Lord is with us and we have overcome and have all things regular. Uh, the word job does not appear in the Book of Mormon. The word labor in some form is there almost a hundred times. Likewise, all things are mentioned many times in the Book of Mormon, but they are never listed as being regular. So we see evidence that Joseph is doing this dictation, but he's not using everyday speech. I want to just suggest that for those that are advocates of the intellect theory, there's an elephant in the room. And I don't mean for this to be in any way disrespectful or snarky, but it's like one will say, Joseph could do this naturally. And everybody seems to want to agree. But this, this elephant in the room that nobody to date has talked about is the difficulty of creative dictation. The ability that, according to this theory, Joseph did. He was able to dictate all of these sentences in all their complexity without having to go back and do any content editing of any kind. To be honest with you, and this is a criticism of this theory, it seems the intellect theory is not really a theory at all. It's just an assumption. If Joseph Smith produced the Book of Mormon naturally, the process, I think, ought to be understandable and repeatable. Now we're going to shift gears just a little bit because the intellect theory allows us to compare Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon to other authors and their books. Busy chart, I apologize, um, and I'm, I'm going over, so I'm going to go quickly, but what I've done here is accumulated uh, every author under the age of 24 to publish a long book. And if you restack the evidence, we discover the Book of Mormon is 50% longer than the next longest book. If we look at the uh, difficulty of the, uh, the text, the Book of Mormon is at an eighth grade level. All of these are simpler than that. And then if we look at the education of the authors, they all have more education than Joseph, except perhaps the one on the top, Mary Shelley. And then it's interesting that there were only three young authors before Joseph Smith. And they wrote books that were simpler and much shorter. If we compare Joseph and his word count output, number of words he produced, we see the Book of Mormon at age 23. We see a little blip for the Joseph Smith translation, Book of Moses, Book of Abraham. If we compare him to other authors, Tolkien is probably the most common. We find Tolkien wrote his book way late in life. If we compare Joseph to Shakespeare, which they do on Mormon Think, um, we find that 
Shakespeare was very constant. He wrote a play every year, sometimes two, except for one year. But by the age that Shakespeare completed his first play, Joseph had completed 85% of everything he was going to produce. I had to, I had to include J.K. Rowling because I just love those movies. Um, again, we see a difference. It's, it's later. There's some crescendo there in the publication. Joseph just, just pops out uh, as being somewhat unique. Now, I'll be honest with you. Um, I've studied these for four years, these theories. I don't think any of them are plausible. But again, I admit my biases right up front. I've been accused of trying to prove the Book of Mormon is true. I'm not doing that either. We don't prove supernatural phenomena through natural evidences. But God observed that the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, and he describes that in DNC 27 through 10, is proving to the world that the Holy Scriptures are true and that God does inspire men. The word proving here is not mine. Of course, the world will not accept the proof. All naturalistic theories portray Joseph as a deceiver. This is one of the problems with the naturalistic theories, is that in every one, Joseph is a deceiver. He's doing the head in the hat as a ruse. Deceivers are all actors. And the Book of Mormon, however, is much more than a stage prop. In other words, Actors don't write books, authors write books. So the Joseph the Deceiver theory kind of breaks down in the Book of Mormon because an actor wouldn't be expected to do that. It would take a real author, which is what Joseph is, has apparently done in, in authoring the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is the real thing. I would just close by saying that it, is, it seems that the heaven touched the earth in the creation of the Book of Mormon at least that's my theory. Thanks. We have about five minutes, and there's lots of long questions here. Um, let me see if I can find a short one. Why does the Book of Mormon seem so post-Christian in orientation? Why the King James language? Different translation, different orientation. Um, it's an excellent question, and it's interesting. For decades, critics have used the what we call intertextuality with the King James Bible and the 19th century elements that are in the Book of Mormon as evidences that the book must have come from Joseph Smith. And uh, what we're learning now is that the Book of Mormon is so complex, and with the use of computers and, and works of, of Neil Frederick and others, Joe Spencer, this intertextuality is so subtle that what they're doing by observing these things is this Book of Mormon that is this complicated, and then we see how in the 19th century elements and the intertextuality with the Bible is intergrained, it's actually much more complex. How could Joseph have done, done that 
just spewing forth words as a stream to Oliver Cowdery. In other words, the level of complexity we're discovering in the text is actually, in my view, demonstrating there's no way Joseph could have done this. This makes it harder than for him to do it. Now, where did this stuff come from? I, I share the same opinion with Royal Skousen, with Grant Hardy, who's a Book of Mormon scholar, with Richard Bushman, who all believe in, uh, that whatever was written on the plates is not the revelation Joseph Smith was dictating, that there was some modification that makes the Book of Mormon uh, more specially designated for our time and for our people. And so they're, they're saying that what Joseph is getting is not strictly what was on the plates. It, it included what was there, but there, these things were added by some interim translator or something. That's their theory, and frankly, I, I think it, that's, that's a good way to explain it. So the intertextuality, 19th century elements, in my mind, are evidences that Joseph could not have done it, even though they have been a very strong evidence for the critics that he could have. Uh, what about direct quotes from the King James Bible? Uh, what about French in the Book of Mormon? When you translate, you're going to use words from your language. I mean, the French word adieu, uh, people get uh, worried about that, but it's in the English Dictionary of, of, 19, of 1828. I mean, the, it had been part of the English language. English speakers were using words like this. I talked about the King James. Um, can't read that writing. What about a combination? How does modern tech change our assumptions about creative writing? Prior to word processors or even typewriters, would rearranging sentences really be a common or central part of the process? Um, I, I, th I think early writers would rearrange sentences. I don't think Great Expectations was written one sentence after another without any subsequent modification. Uh, yeah, there, there were editors back then, but Joseph didn't have one, so. What about the theory that Spalding had a different book than the one that was found? And I actually pulled the slide last night because I knew I was too long. Um, there is an alternate theory that Spalding wrote two manuscripts. The second one was actually the one that had the same names as the Book of Mormon, uh, and that's the one that came through Rigdon and all. There's just, there's just no supportive evidence for Rigdon being involved, and there's problems at every turn with this theory. It's, it's, it's fun if you want to read about it, but the, the historical record is not kind to any theory that wants to put Spalding involved with the Book of Mormon. How good was the literature that Pearl Curran dictated via, via automatic writing? Was it substantive, complex, and coherent? Yes and yes, but she used a really weird dialect that I, I haven't read the entire sorry tale because it is so difficult to figure out in English what she means because she's using, it's not early, early English, it's just a variant that she made up and it became better over time. Uh, the, her later books were easier to understand, but, but they were complex. They, they weren't simple tales. Uh, I don't think the sorry tale is as complex as the Book of Mormon, but on psychologists, don't forget William James, early psychologist. Joseph Smith was judged to have been genuine religious experiences. Okay, I'm not understanding, sorry. This may, uh, I wish there were short questions. Let's try these. 
we're, we're out of time. Shouldn't Joseph be compared to other oral storytellers rather than authors? I love this question. And there's a book out uh, about Bosnian storytellers. And these guys could go on for days. And uh, William Davis talks about it in a PhD dissertation. It's fascinating, but even he admits there's not a real parallel because these storytellers are going on for hours by, by taking the king that they're talking about and telling us about his earrings and about his robe and about the sash on the robe. And I mean, there's not the complexities that we see in the Book of Mormon. That's not how they're getting their long narratives. And, and like I say, even Bill Davis acknowledges that it's not a real good... Uh, a parallel. What about the fallen prophet theory? Um, you know, that's a kind of a personal thing. I, I believed in 18, 1829 he was a prophet, and I've studied all of Nauvoo. I don't like polygamy. I never want to practice it. But I do defend Joseph as a worthy prophet. I don't think that there was anything there that he did that would have caused him to lose the, the spiritual gifts that he'd been given. Thank you. Thank you very much.